live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. A good quittle, Rabbi Hirsch, just to inform our listeners that we are recording here on a Matzah Yom Kippur. That is some serious nefesh for you. Absolutely. You could probably, you'll probably be able to hear it on our voices. I'm a bit blocked up having the air conditioning on me for the last 24 hours. But yeah, let's dive straight in. This is part three of the series on printing. Now, it's a lot more than just printing. This week, we're going to be discussing a very controversial figure in the Jewish publishing world. But before that... Okay. Before that, as I mentioned to you recently, we were sent the following question. So this was following last week's discussion on early printing. And the question asked, are there any of these early printed Svarim still in existence? So there definitely are some. We mentioned Henry VIII's full set of Talmud, which is early 16th century. There's a Haggadah that we mentioned in our series on Pesach a while back, and of Soncino's printing, we have uh, a number of volumes, not just of the Talmud, actually. I've also seen a 16th century Tanakh in the library in Venice. So some have survived, most not. And given the scarcity of these books, there is a real market in fakes. Uh, now, I'm sure you've been sent photos of uh, Jewish writings for sale uh, discovered in Arab lands, Arab countries. I actually have been sent yes, some of that for sale. everyone has. <laughs> you know, colourful WhatsApp. I mean, a few years ago, I can't remember exactly when, Turkish authorities were told that contraband was passing through in a couple of vehicles because Turkey is at the crossroads of Europe and Asia and antiquities is one of the things they tend to smuggle. So they arrested this group and wrapped in a plastic bag was a leather-bound book which was written in Hebrew in uh, gold ink. And the authorities announced that they had found a 2,000-year-old Torah except that, for one, the object in question was a book, not a scroll. And you'll remember from our trip to the Geniza, that books are not 2,000 years old, anywhere near that. It also had classically the Star of David, which again is on most of these ridiculous WhatsApps, but the Mog and David only became a Jewish symbol in the Middle Ages. I'm guessing if you claim it comes from the Arab countries, then they're saying that in order to make it sound genuine. Jews lived there for so long and so many of the Middle Eastern countries, no? Yes, and also for many, Jewish life came to a sudden end when they were forced out after the State of Israel came into being. So there was a lot of genuine stuff left behind. You know, the National Library in Israel is besieged with calls from collectors in Islamic countries offering, quote-unquote, historical manuscripts. And one of the things that these non-Jews don't realize is what the Jewish antiquities market actually is. In other words, they are asking for millions, but no one pays that for genuine 
uh, Judaica, which is, I don't know, uh, 700 years old. Now, the fakes have improved over time. Some items pass the initial test uh, because they sort of put a Torah scroll in an original Torah cover, Pereches, that was preserved in a shawl in one of the Arab countries. But, you know, as soon as you see the writing, it becomes obvious. One place where forgers have gotten away with fraud is, interestingly, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Pieces appear for sale. At least five were bought by the chairman of the Museum of the Bible, which is a a non-Jewish museum in the United States, bought for an undisclosed amount ahead of its opening, but they were fake. How do you fake 2,000-year-old scrolls? I mean, surely it must be immediately obvious that they're not 2,000 years old. They are, because the forgers use Roman-era leather. They take boots or sandals to sort of imitate parchment. Nowadays, we've got microscopes, we've got chemical analysis, so you can find traces of uh, residue, which, you know, wouldn't have existed at the time. I don't know, glue. 20 years ago in Poland... I would find Sunday markets with at least one of the stalls selling World War II or pre-war items. You'd find medals, uh, yellow stars, armbands. They're all fakes. And sometimes they would sell a page or two of a safer, which were possibly authentic but worthless. You know, a Siddha printed 150 years ago might sound valuable, but it isn't, not even if you had the entire book. Whereas 30 years ago, when people first started coming to Eastern Europe, some of it would have been real and valuable. You know, you would have had uh, uh, bank notes from the Lodge Ghetto on sale or parts of Sifretera. And I remember bringing a girls group to Poland once. And they were in shawl davening, so I asked the janitor, who I knew, whether I could get into the attic, which was full of um, old pages and dust. So you wanted to bring back the next uh, Hirsch Geniza, I guess. That's right, yes. Although far from being the Cairo Geniza, it was a wash in pages of recently old Chumashim. But but I didn't want to have clambered through a dusty loft in vain, so I brought some pages home, but they do not really have any value. Although I was recently speaking to a friend of mine, to Rabbi Pini Dunner, and discussing the international dateline controversy, and he mentioned that some of the items written are rare, even though it's only 80 years old. So I guess equally, with enough time and effort spent in these places, you could possibly find a book that isn't necessarily so old, but still is valuable. But in the main, it's not going to happen. Although, talking of forgeries, there have been well-known fake pieces within the Orthodox world. Possibly the most famous one was the supposed rediscovery of the lost volumes of the Jerusalem Talmud in the very early 20th century, although that's a whole long story in its own right, not for tonight. But to mention in passing, since we dealt with the Maharal a few weeks ago, in 1923, Chaim Bloch, Rabbi Chaim Bloch potentially, who was an author, he published a letter of the Maharal that was previously unknown, dated 1582, 
which provides a detailed account of why the Maral had to create a golem and how he went about doing it. And Bloch assures his readers that the letter was published from an original in his possession. And to quell any doubts, he produced a copy of the Maral's signature produced from that letter. Now, what he didn't mention is where the letter had spent the last 300 years in hiding, but he did thank Rubschmull Neuwit of Vienna, if such a person existed, for his efforts in acquiring the letter and handing it over to Bloch. And given that it was published with a series of Hasidic documents, including actual letters of the Baal Shem Tov, which were allegedly recovered from Eastern European archives that had been plundered during World War I, the impression is that the Maral letter probably belonged to these archives as well, although he doesn't explicitly state that. I think I know what comes next. <laughs> yes. So... Rup Schneer who exposed the Niflois Samaral as being a fictional storybook, does the same here in various ways. Firstly, the Maral is depicted throughout the letter as devoting all his energies to countering the blood libel in Prague, but there is no historical evidence, Jewish or Christian, of a blood libel in Prague during the lifetime of the Maral. Also, in the letter, the Maharal uses the term Moldavka to refer to the Moldau River, which is nowadays called the Vlatava River in Czech. And it's surprising that the Maharal didn't know how to spell this river correctly, given that it would have been an essential ingredient for writing a get, a legal valid divorce document. It is even more surprising that the Maral was unaware that the Moldo flows through the centre of the city of Prague, not on the outskirts. Also, the letter speaks of Kli Hamore Shaot, which is nowadays a term for a watch or a clock. This term first entered Hebrew in the 19th century. <laughs> and the term Mochana, which means a machine, also entered the Hebrew language in the 19th century. If you're going to forge, you need to do a little bit more homework. And finally, the signature reads Yehuda Hamachuna Leib, known as Leib, son of Rebetzalel, but the Maral never signed his name this way, and the actual signature looks nothing like the Maral's real signature. It's quite a weak attempt. <laughs> well, at the time, without the internet and without, you know, sort of international communication the way it is, you could get away with it. In fact, Schmuel Weingarten reported that he was at the home of the Munkar Chereba, around 1922 or 23, um, when two of the sons of the Spinker Rebbe came and showed this alleged handwritten letter signed by the Morale of Prague. And they explained that a soldier had been taken captive at the Russian front during the First World War. And he had participated in the looting of government archives during the Russian Revolution. And he'd brought the letter to their father to sell it, and he wanted quite a lot of money for it. But since the Spinker Rebbe wasn't an expert in manuscripts, he wanted to hear from the Munkacher Rebbe. The Rebbe examines the manuscript for 15 minutes with a magnifying glass and concluded that it was worthless, that it was a, a forgery. Now, and the Munkacher Rebbe was a known antiques yeah, expert? He, he knew his way around these type of things, yes. Wow. 
Now, we don't know the identity of the forger, or when, or why, but probably sometime between around 1910 to 1920. I guess it sheds light or perhaps darkness on what Jewish forgers were doing during that time in the 20th century, but not much else. And as you said, it's much harder today to pass a forgery. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so now on to our figure of controversy that you promised us. Yes. So I want to look at an individual who was a prolific author, a publisher, translator. He was at the forefront of modern Jewish journalism, besides for many other undertakings, a colorful figure, a pioneer who underwent changes in life, but a figure of controversy. He was called by one individual a walking melodrama. Now, many people mention him in their writings, but very few do so positively. And ultimately, as we shall see, he is a figure of disgrace, although it all started so well. He was born in the Russian Empire, with the surname Frumkin in 1845, in Belarus, in fact. His mother was the daughter of Rubaron Halevi of Staroshelia. And this grandfather, from the age of 17, had been one of, if not the major disciple of Rubshnir Zalman, of the Balatanya. Rubaron was actually a serious contender for the leadership of Lubavitch after the death of the Alter Rebbe, because, you know, in those days, branches of Hasidus were not necessarily family-based at all, as we mentioned. And he established a rival court of Hasidus, which survived until the death of his son and successor, Rubhaim Rafal, who left no heir, at which time most of the Hasidim returned to Chabad. And Frumkin's father, Representer Frumkin, was a Lubavitcher Chosid and a wealthy businessman. So Frumkin grew up in a very religious Hasidic atmosphere, and he was always a writer throughout his life. His first foray was to collect many stories from amongst the Hasidim and print them, for which he is still known today in religious, especially in the Hasidic circles, particularly his Shifchei Harav about the Balatanya, which was the first book printed about the stories about the life of the Balatanya in Hebrew and Yiddish, which was very popular, and also told us about Shemtov, which is still read today. Doesn't sound too controversial. Sounds quite straightforward. Not yet. So he's well regarded. He also prints Tanya, other mainstreams for him. In 1866, he moves to places where there are printing presses, uh, Zhitomir, uh, Warsaw, and then it all changes. In 1873, he moved to St. Petersburg and goes through a transformation. He becomes a muskil, meaning he abandons his former life, which many did in the 19th century, that in itself is not unique, but his change will be in every way and very abrupt. His religious life, his manner of dress, including the style of writing, he even changes his name to Rodkinson. Why Rodkinson? <laughs> it sounds like a very English name. Yeah, Actually, Lord Rodkinson. Right, so Rodka was his mother's name, Rodka's son. That was, you know, 
quite uh, done in those days. Agav, he says that Rodkinson in Hebrew and Frumkin in Hebrew have the same gematria, have the same numerical value. <laughs> That's not the usual thought process of someone abandoning Judaism. You pick a name with the same gematria, sure. Right. So the most astonishing thing, or unusual anyway, is that he would see himself in his mind as a religious Jew. I mean, he would have to keep on redefining what Judaism was in order to keep up this fantasy, which is he's quite happy to do. And that's what makes him interesting, because he shows what people did in the 19th century when they left orthodoxy with a full knowledge of orthodoxy. It's not like today where somebody drops out either because they've suddenly discovered there's an outside world, whereas he'd been living in the largest cities in the empire for years, or they drop out nowadays because they're sort of ignorant about Judaism. None of those reasons are true for him. And he represents what tens of thousands of Jews across Europe did in the 19th century, except he does it alone. And because he's a writer, we can keep track of his thoughts and beliefs throughout. So the first thing he does is he changes profession for a while. He works in St. Petersburg as a stockbroker and speculator. He's clearly a very versatile individual. And on the side, he sold forged documents, military exemptions, travel documents, and he is caught. And he's charged with financial irregularities, convicted of fraud and sentenced to a year in jail. So he fled to Prussia, to Königsberg. And in Königsberg, he created a Hebrew weekly newspaper, Hakol, the sound, the voice, which is described as a radical and militant tendency of Haskalah. So he's not just a muscle, he's a radical one. He's very much turned the page on his upbringing, and his weekly newspaper is a mouthpiece for his views. Unfortunately for him, a rival newspaper, Hamelitz, that had gone out of business for financial reasons, got a new lease of life and was considered superior. So he needs to still hold on to his readers, so he attacks his fellow Maskilim in his journal. They complain to the Russian authorities. His paper ends up being censored by the Russian government, which should have been the end. It would have been for a lesser person, except Rodkinson uses this opportunity to increase membership. There's nothing like a good machlokes to get people's interest. And he now has to mail the copies in covered packages. But the war of words with his rivals continue and he ends up ultimately the loser and he's closed down just by the way sometimes in order to drum up some money he would put on the guise of Hasidus and travel across Russia as a wonder rabbi healing childless women very clever he picked a niche right yes exactly as a side income <laughs> so okay he's been closed down now undaunted because this man is never down and out he moves to Berlin and when he can't make it there he moves to London 1882 and now he decides to give full expression to his very new views of Judaism and explain this Judaism to the non-Jewish world. His delusion as to the correctness of his own positions, it's, you know, it's at odds with everybody and everything. It's unabated. You know, you have to see the, the self-confidence of this individual. It's really you just mentioned earlier that the mid-19th century was generally a time of upheaval 
for Jews in Europe. Can you clarify a bit what you meant? So whereas the last part of the 19th century was upheaval in the sense that people moved uh, geographically, here in the middle of the century, you've got upheaval, I'd guess you'd call it, in people's thinking, in their philosophies. You've got Haskalah, reform, secular Judaism, early Zionism, and this is part of what he embraces. And his next book is about Matzah and blood libels. He ties them together and says, he claims, that if Jews abandoned all these strange laws that rabbis have imposed upon them, non-Jews would no longer associate this practice with the blood of Christian babies. And it's the rabbis of the past thousand years who are at fault. They've invented lots of these practices. And however strange it sounds, he clearly did have an audience because he even travels back to Berlin to translate this book into German for the non-Jewish world. So it sounds like his mission was to combat anti-Semitism. So it's interesting, while he is a muscle, he is also combating anti-Semitism. proudly Jewish. Yes, very odd. Mm. And then he writes another book. This one's on Tefillin. And Rodkinson allegedly traces the origin of Tefillin to amulets that were given to the ancient Jews by priests to get rid of evil spirits. And this practice of daily wearing of Tefillin is an invention by French Jewish rabbis in the Middle Ages. And it's in fact a perversion of Talmudic Judaism, according to him. And this is what he is now publishing. But he has the support of certain groups within the reform movement because they share some of his beliefs, one of which is that originally Shabbos was on Sunday. And there is in Germany a strong movement within 19th century reform to move Shabbos to Sunday, to outlaw circumcision, to dismiss the Talmud. You know, we've spoken about this in other podcasts. And therefore, he does have some backing but it's not from the masculine and it's definitely not from the religious. Very, very confusing character. Yes. Um, did he observe Judaism in any way after all this? No. I mean, not in what we would call halachic correct circumstances. His abandonment of traditional lifestyle, in fact, was not only intellectual, but even behavioral. His numerous detractors, we haven't spoken about this, but he had many, they devoted chapters in their books to attacking him, accusing him of a litany of crimes. These are masculine. Ephraim Daynard, for example, who's possibly the most famous, who's known for his strong opinions, repeatedly attacked him in newspapers and wrote a book, Mushke Ivrim, Errors of the Blind, just about Rodkinson. And he recounts an incident earlier in 1867 in which he was a participant because a government-appointed rabbi who was originally Hasidic requested Daynard's assistance with a case in the Russian courts. Frumkin, as he was at the time, Rodkinson as he became, had been incarcerated, charged with marrying three women at the same time and also absconding with their money. And his defense was that just like Muslims were allowed more than one wife, so too Jews are under Mosaic law. And um, Daynard tells the court that the Torah did permit polygamy, but European jury had accepted to be monogamous. So he's forced to divorce his wives and he leaves town. Was after Abinagashem. 
well, yes, that's, uh, you know, in the year 900 and something. Right. So Rodkinson doesn't have many friends, but you have to admire his chutzpah of a man with nothing in his armory except his creativeness. He was not a man of means who has the drive to the degree that even after his death, people are still writing books against him in order to warn people away from his works, which means there was an enduring popularity in certain corners, even though he is accused of apostasy and bigamy and fraud. And in fact, even in the religious world, his books on Hasidus are still read. He, um, his um, the, the time the Balatanya spent in jail is most spoken about by Rodkinson Frumkin, you know. I mean, all you've said about him, he, he wrote this much, he caused such a stir, but I've never heard of him, and I, I, I wonder how many people have. Okay, well, you're a litfuck. Um, no, <laughs> but the, the truth is that in terms of the controversy, the reason we haven't heard of him is partly because the fight takes place in enlightenment circles and also because it's written up in hebrew and yiddish and in a sort of an academic version of both these languages so it's not the type of general reading material now in 1889 he spent another year in jail they claim although i don't think this is substantiated that he altogether went to jail 17 times i don't think that's quite the case though um so this time he spent a year in jail in vienna and now he leaves europe altogether he goes to america and in the states rodkinson turns to his magnum opus the translation of the talmud and we are told in his introduction to Rosh Hashanah, Masechtas Rosh Hashanah, that this has been Rodkinson's dream for 12 years. He had a desire to revise and correct the Talmud, to return the Talmud to the people and the people to the Talmud. He has one problem. He doesn't actually speak English. I thought you said he did translate it. So I did. Not understanding the language and not a man to ever be put down, he employed Jewish high school students. He translated the Talmud from Aramaic to Yiddish, and they translated it from Yiddish into English. Now, initially, after they'd worked for him for a short time, he claimed that their translation was unsatisfactory and dismissed them without payment. He then hired more young men and repeating this process, although ultimately word got out. So a considerable part of the work was done by family members. And he puts quite some amount of the Babylonian Talmud into English in the years 1896 to 1903. But the work is an abridgment because it reflects Rodkinson's approach to the Talmud. And therefore, there's a lot of text which has just been cut out, particularly if there's an involved discussion or Rodkinson disapproves of the subject matter. And a prominent reform rabbi, reform back then, was much more ideologically distant from orthodoxy. Yet the reform rabbi writes in a review that the vandalism perpetrated against the text of the Talmud is unparalleled and he has mutilated and murdered the finest passages so his final work earns him possibly the least amount of friends although ironically it is the work for which he is best known type his name into wikipedia and that 
is the book that he is credited with and in 1904 he dies of pneumonia he's buried in the public non-denominational section of temple israel cemetery in new york next to his second wife and his tombstone states that he is the translator of the babylonian talmud (laughs) it's a shame imagine had he turned his abilities to useful pursuits such a creative character yep and with his sense of mission and purpose but arrogance does that too somebody to a man i will however leave you all with a challenge many sforim printed nowadays go out of their way not to have a hebrew page number with a negative meaning or connotation Uh, to give you a few examples i'll give you three examples page 298 in hebrew would be resh tzadi ches retzach which means murder 270 would be ra which means evil 344 would be shmud and therefore they transpose the letters it's shin dalad mem it's ayin resh the page numbers are changed and it's very common in like a shulchan Aruch. it's not uniform in all svarim but it's very common what i would like to know is where did it start i have looked at early svarim in the 1800s they don't have it i saw a shulchan Aruch arav so listeners you have some homework do you know when this started and perhaps by whom are they allowed to use the internet they can use anything they like i don't mind finding out from any source as long as it's authentic all right rabbi hirsch has given his first challenge yes okay thank you very much another fascinating episode this is the third out of four and the final podcast on printing will only appear the tuesday after yom tov we're gonna have a break now which of course gives everyone the time to catch up do the chazara and a challenge and respond to the challenge respond to the challenge please do send your feedback your reviews but most importantly this week the answer to the challenge to podcasts at jle.org.uk have you thought of a prize for the winner at the moment discounted prague we we will (laughs) mention them by name if they wish but uh, beyond that i haven't really given the matter any thought okay so you could they could suggest a prize too Uh, when writing in yes exactly okay thank you rabbi hirsch and have a wonderful yom tov and we'll see you after the break 